So our opening passage this morning is going to be from Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. Matthew is the first gospel of the New Testament. I don't know if you know this, but your Bible has a table of contents. So if you're new to the scriptures, you can actually go right to the front of your Bible. It'll help you get there. But it's Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. We're going to start there. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This morning, it's real simple. We're going to be looking at what Jesus meant by light. One of the best things is to be an on-fire Christian. But as I'm getting older, I'm discovering that powerful sentence that Paul says, that zeal without knowledge is not good either, though. You see, we have to understand what Jesus meant by light, what it means to be on fire. Otherwise, we will do great damage to the kingdom of God because we're filling in the blank rather than actually following what Jesus said. We have to be careful with this. We live in a culture that is driven right now more by emotion than, about, than by truth. And what feels good on the inside, than rather what God has said, I've called you to do and to fight the flesh. And so what, we, what I want to look at this morning is what did Jesus mean by light? Because if we, are, if we were, are disconnected from what he meant by being on fire, then my friends, we're missing the mark. And the good news is that Jesus will bring us back on the mark, and that is always where the presence of the Holy Spirit is. So we're going to be looking at what did Jesus mean by light? Obviously, he did not mean literal rays of sunshine. So if you're like, what does he mean by light? Of course, he is talking kind of in a metaphor or an analogy. This morning, I want to talk about what it really looks like to be on fire for Jesus Christ and not chasing our own shadows or delusions about what we think but what Jesus meant when he said it, because that's the only standard that will matter on Judgment Day. We're going to be looking at it because it's incredibly important. So this morning, just for simplicity's sake, I titled the message Lit, <laughs> which if you were here for that, that harkens back to Pastor Anthony's message on kind of keeping us updated on the latest slang. And lit can mean many things, which some of you are smirking, knowing one of them. And then there's another one, which is the one I am talking about, which is being on fire for Christ. I do like it when the scripture, or I should say culture, uses a word in scripture. It's kind of a funny point because we oftentimes want to get rid of the words in scripture because culture is using, and I think it should be the opposite. I think when, when the, when the culture is using a certain word that's in scripture, that's when we should be teaching on that scripture. Because then we can show them that what the world meant by that word is far surpassed by Jesus Christ. That's a different message. <laughs> Funny thing about this message is when I was going over it, preparing for it, right before Pastor David left, he came into my office and goes, so what are you teaching on? I forgot to ask. And I told him. And he went, are you kidding? I am doing an entire series on that next. And then it was like the showdown, who's going to give up the message? Which, of course, it would have had to be me, of course. 
And then I said, well, what are you covering and how? And he tells me. And then I was like, well, I'm covering it this way. And I kid you not, it was totally a God thing for our church. What I'm covering and the way I'm covering it completely introduces exactly scripturally where pastor's going to be taking us in the next series. We didn't even talk about it. It's pretty neat. So let's go back to the text. In this setting that Jesus is saying this powerful thing, you are the light of the world, he's actually talking to a crowd of people who have been following him from all over the region. This is important because you need the visual. Thousands of people are following Jesus. These are Jews and Gentiles, believers and unbelievers, people of every kind. They've been following Jesus around wherever they, whenever they can, probably on their lunch breaks or vacation days or so it seems. But they're all waiting to see what Jesus is going to do or say next. And, here's the, and, and boy, oh boy, are they in for a treat. Because suddenly in the narrative, Jesus turns on them in Matthew chapter 5, 1, which we're going to get to in a second. But they're all following him. Jesus turns on them all and says, you are the light of the world. Could you imagine? Jews and Gentiles, believers, unbelievers, Jesus turns to them all and says, you are the light of the world. Interesting. He says, like a city on a hill or a lamp in a dark room, you are all so bright, so let that light shine. And so in that way that Jesus does, he gets everyone thinking, I'm what? Light? What does he mean by that? And this is exactly what we should still be asking today. And not just as individual believers, but as a church body. You see, we're all under God's mandate to reach this city. I don't know if you know. The Holy Spirit doesn't just call us to go to church. He calls us to be the church. Otherwise, we are not the church. It's part of our call and responsibility to reach the city in which God has placed us. It's not uncommon in the scriptures for God to judge entire cities or even churches because they missed the mark. We see that with Sodom and Gomorrah or the church of Laodicea in Revelation. And we too have our call as a church. We are not called high point for a reason. Did you ever think of that? Oh, we are literally on a hill, people. I know, right? You're like, <laughs> to whom much is given, much is expected. This matters, and this matters a lot. Our church is well known in this community, and we represent Jesus Christ in this community. That is our responsibility as an individual believer, but also as a church body. Amen? This is literally the future of our church. And that's not an overstatement. In a city, when I first moved here, looked up how many churches there are, and it actually says that there are between 40 and 50 listed churches. When I looked at how many of them are dead, it is more than 80%. We are a light in our community more than you know. And I don't have to go over some of the events that have happened in the last year about how important it is that we are the body of Christ to this community even if they don't like us and even when it's hard because we are not about people pleasing we're about jesus pleasing and we know that when jesus brought salvation to our soul it changed everything so we need to not worry about what people think of us in the meantime because we know if jesus entered their souls it would change everything so jesus says shine and this isn't just about outreach 
It also includes how we love each other, raise our families, greet newcomers, and above all, follow the leading of God for our church and our lives. All of these are different ways that we shine. I remember when I first read this passage as a new believer, it hit me really hard. And I remember thinking, I'm a light? I mean, I gave my life to Jesus, but I'm a light? And I remember thinking, that's really scary. But what I love is it doesn't say, Chris, uh, 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 try to become a light. He says, Chris, you're already a light. Stop hiding. Shine. Because the message of the gospel is not earn your way in, it's grace. So when I just be myself in all of my perfections, I believe that the God of grace is going above me and beyond me and far past me in terms of reaching people. And then people can go, if that guy can get into the kingdom, well, surely I can. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. So I was intimidated by this, but I still prayed because Jesus is my Lord. I don't pick and choose. I prayed. Okay, Jesus, you said it. Whatever you want me to do, that I will do. Just show me what it looks like to shine. Amen? So being the good Bible student that I was, I went back to the text and searched the context, which in the words of my daughter is a fancy Nancy way of saying, just read what came before. <laughs> you know, you read kids' books, and you're like, that's actually a good way of putting it. And you will actually find what I found when you do. If you just read a little bit before Jesus said, be a light, you will actually see that Jesus clearly defined what he meant. He did not leave it a fill in the blank. He clearly defined what he was talking about. And it was not smile more. It was not in some vague way, be nicer. It was not find new ways of reaching the lost. Now, I'm not against those things. Smile, be nicer. <laughs> but that's not what Jesus meant. He was literally talking about something called the Beatitudes. Everybody say the Beatitudes. You see, when Jesus says, be a light, he is not saying, fill in the blank. That is the life you gave up. He is saying, stick to my word. And he was very clear right beforehand what he was talking about is live the Beatitudes, the blessed life, the happy life, not through the acquisition of worldly things which pass and destroy, but the things of the Spirit which lasts forever. Jesus was referring to the Beatitudes, which he had literally just finished teaching on. The Beatitudes, to give you a little heads up, and we're going to dig in, because I can tell some of you are like, Chris, just get into it. I'm so hungry for this. Good. The Beatitudes were Jesus' eight rules for kingdom living. I don't know if you know, if you gave your life to Jesus, you are now part of the kingdom. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. What used to fly does not fly anymore. What used to your conscience was like, I don't care, that's fine, do what you want. You gave your life to Jesus, and he's like, no, you can't do that anymore. And you're like, what? It's because you're a citizen of a new kingdom, of a better kingdom. This was Jesus' great manifesto of Christian living. There's nothing like it in any of the scriptures. The closest we get is the Ten Commandments, and Jesus was clear that his covenant was a better covenant. So when it comes to being a light, it is not fill in the blank. It is the Beatitudes that we're going to look at. They are the standard by which we shall be judged in the next life, and they are the valve or the hinge that determines how much of God we experience in this life. If you are feeling very, very far from God, one of the best places to start 
is to ask yourself how much you look like him right now in your actions and in your thoughts and in your deeds. Intimacy with God is not about proximity because he's the all-present God. He is everywhere. If he stopped, if he stopped existing in a place, you would, go, you would disappear. He holds your existence in place. So when it talks about intimacy with God, it's not talking about proximity. It's talking about intimacy. And intimacy with God has to do with likeness with God. You ever worked with somebody that was on the other side of the personality scale? How'd that go? The same way with God. If you want deeper intimacy with God, you have to become more like God. If you want greater gap between God, then, stop, then become less like God. Jesus is trying to help us to see not just how to get into the kingdom, but continue to grow in the kingdom and enter intimacy with Jesus Christ, which I love. Any Christian that calls themselves a Christian but does not follow the Beatitudes, either in the spirit or the letter, they are definitely not lit in the way that Jesus met. And I want you to get that. Because <laughs> if you're like, I'm on fire, I'm like, let's look at the Beatitudes. And if you're like, wow, I, I, this looks a lot like what the Holy Spirit's been teaching me. My friend, you are on fire. But if we go through this list and you're like, oh, dear Jesus, I'm ready for the altar call. <laughs> That's okay. That's why there's mercy and grace. Holy Spirit conviction's good. So let's see what Jesus meant starting with Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Starting with Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. As I said, Jesus was originally talking to crowds. That means that this message was actually intended for everyone. But Jesus was no fool. He knew the only ones really listening would be his disciples, which is kind of how it is today. You will know the difference between being a churchgoer and a disciple is if when you come to church and you sit there thinking, well, I'm done. I checkmarked my day. Whereas a disciple goes, I'm not done until I've heard something that makes me want to do something for Jesus today or this week. That is a disciple. Nevertheless, because of the merciful God that Jesus was, he still decides to go up on a high mountainside to sit down to have a better vantage point in which to teach all who had ears to hear. But what I find fascinating, he's teaching to a crowd, but who are the only ones who draw near to Jesus in intimacy? The scripture's clear. Disciples. 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 Now I want you to take a step back for a moment before we dig in a little closer and get to the Beatitudes. Do you notice anything familiar about this scene of God going up on a mountain and teaching to a crowd of Israelites. Anybody sound familiar in the Old Testament? A really, really famous scene in the Old Testament to the Jews? Mount Sinai, my friends. But I love the better covenant of Jesus Christ, and I'm so glad that I was not born in the older covenant. Because in the older covenant, when God hits the mountain, it's with fire and lightning and earthquakes. And he says, don't you dare come near. My holiness will annihilate you. The only one allowed to come up is Moses. That was old covenant. In the new covenant, what do we see? Jesus is saying, all who want to hear me and listen to me, now you can approach. You can draw near. And it is safe. 
It is serene, and it is gentle. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God for all of humanity's sin, which is why no matter how far lost you are, you can come to Jesus Christ, and it will be a gentle and a meek presence. He paid the price. I love this scene. I wish I could go even deeper. There's so many parallels between Mount Sinai and that covenant and what this covenant we find. But all I want you to notice is Old Testament, scary. <laughs> New Testament, lovable. I don't know, something along those lines. Gentle, approachable, all of those good things. I really believe Matthew caught the gist of what Jesus was trying to portray which is it used to be that Mount Sinai and Ten Commandments were the great theme of what it meant to follow God, and now Jesus is coming along and going a new thing. The Beatitudes are coming. I believe Jesus was reenacting and in a way replacing that old covenant scene with a better one. I don't know if you know this, but the, la the two last words in the Old Testament, some of you are going to look, and that's great, do it. The two last words in the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, they literally say total destruction. The two last words of the Old Covenant, total destruction. Really hopeful, right? I love that Jesus' first word in this new teaching is what? Blessed. Now, isn't that powerful? Blessed. Remind me of this song that I heard. Where it's blessed in this city. We're blessed in this field. We're blessed when we come and when we go. We cast down every stronghold, sickness. It's great. My singing may not be, but it was great. That's why Scott does what he does and I do what I do. As a Christian, you are missing it. If you don't realize in Jesus Christ, you're already blessed. All he's trying to do is get your eyes to see it more and more. You're already blessed. He saved you despite your sin and your works. Now all he wants you to do is start living it and experiencing it. With that, he opens up with blessed are the poor in spirit, which means this is accessible to everybody. Everybody. Now who you are, where you're at, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's Jesus' way of saying my kingdom is available to everybody. So if you were the person in schools that count me out, if you were the person that saw everybody else succeed and you never succeed, that does not work in the kingdom of God. The, those who feel the most um, left out, Jesus is trying to get right in your face right now and go, I want you. I want you. Poor in spirit, I'm not going to go in depth because I promised Pastor David I wouldn't. means many things, but I think practically it just comes down to the one, that, this, this alone. Being blessed to be poor in spirit means blessed are those who know how to pray, who know they need God, and in increasing measure, how much they need him every moment of every day over the course of their Christian life. To me, that is how it's practically worked out. Because someone who is not poor in spirit does not pray because they think they can do it. But the longer you follow Jesus, if you're really on fire, the more and more it starts to look like this. God doesn't need you arrogant. He doesn't need you prideful. 
You don't even have to try to be poor. My friend, you already are. The Holy Spirit just wants to give you a revelation of how poor you really are so that you can just let it finally all go and get into the presence of meek and gentle Jesus and let Holy Spirit go to work. I love what Mother Teresa said towards the end of her ministry after she had touched the entire world with this crazy ministry, such a, such a poor in spirit woman. She said, I don't think there is anyone who needs God's help as much as I do. Sometimes I feel so helpless and weak. I think that's why God uses me, because I cannot depend on my own strength. If the day had even more hours, I would need his grace for those hours too. To be poor in spirit could mean many things, but above all, it definitely means prayer. Those who are poor in spirit know how to pray. And the first beatitude of a happy person in the kingdom are those who pray and believe. The next up is blessed are those who mourn, which is kind of a funny one. I know many people are like, happy are you if you mourn? Okay, I'm going to walk away. I do not know what to do with that. But it makes sense if you're a Christian, if you're a believer. And in fact, some of you, if you're new to Christ, you don't even realize this is already playing out. This beatitude is already playing out. You just did not interpret it. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, and you're like, Jesus, I need you. I'm done living life my way. That's the poor in spirit moment. And you come into the kingdom. I don't know if you know this, but the first thing that usually happens other than like you feel the freedom of forgiveness is there's this thing that's called your conscience kicks in. Because your life is still your life. After you gave your life to Jesus, whatever was still in place, you're going right back to and you're going to have to renew. But now your conscience, was filled with the Holy Spirit, looks at it and goes, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, it's like my whole life was, it was. That's why you need salvation. And it's really easy to get hopeless. And that's when Satan comes, see, you're not worth it. You're not perfect enough. And we have to go back to the original thing. is poor in spirit, poor in spirit, poor in spirit. Why would you be blessed if you mourn? Because you're beginning to realize, I do a lot of things that hurt the cause of Jesus Christ and hurt his heart. And that hurts me now and it didn't used to. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn for a world destroyed by sin, a soul destroyed by sin. But now we feel hope. Because Jesus can overcome. Blessed are those who know how to cry over sin. Those who know how to weep and fight and patiently wait for right things. Jesus knew how to weep. But notice he never, world, he never weeped over worldly things. He never weeped over worldly things. He never shed a single tear over health or wealth or happiness. No, he was always weeping for souls affected by sin. He wept over Jerusalem because she was separated from God by sin. He wept over Lazarus' death because death was connected to sin and then rose him from the grave, which is pretty neat. Jesus knew how to weep for the right things. Souls, souls, souls. Jesus never wept over his own soul because he was sinless. But we should... As a Christian, it's good to weep over the strongholds of your own soul. Anybody here ever wept over your own soul? Why am I the way that I am? God, why won't you deliver me? God, it drives you to tears. Happy are you because you're finally weeping over the right things. And then the scripture says you shall be comforted. Anybody ever felt the comfort of the Lord after you wept 
over the right things. Wasn't it worth it? It softens you, doesn't it? You guys, we got to regain weeping. It doesn't mean crying tears, but there's got to be a weeping sometimes in our heart. You know, sometimes I see around the nations or I see people in a city and I weep on the inside. I literally get mad at the devil and the things we see going on in our city and the people, that, the things that are happening. It's, and, and I will, I'll feel like this weeping about it. That's what Jesus wants for all of us is that we would learn how to mourn the right things again. That is how you're going to stay in the will of God, which leads to the next beatitude, which is are the meek. And I love that this beatitude comes after the mourning. Because I'll tell you what, when you start feeling the actual pain of sin, um, there's another reaction is you get angry. God, why is there so much of it? Why this? Why that? And we start to get angry. Blessed are those who meek. Being meek just simply means you know how to mourn over sin, but you also know how to trust God to fix it and not stay angry. Jesus wept over all of this stuff, but notice he never got bitter the longer he lived. He knew how to trust God with these things. So to me, to be meek means to be able to feel the suffering in the world because of sin and even get mad about it. But we trust God to fix it through patience and prayer and obedience. I want you to listen to this. I believe that one of the great dangers of every saint, the longer they live, is resentment. Not their bodies, but their heart. Not wrinkles and aches and pains, but a cold and hardened heart. I know I feel it. The longer I'm in ministry, the longer I walk Jesus, the more I feel the weight of sin in the world and in others sometimes at me and sometimes me at others. And I feel the temptation to get mad and to get angry and to get resentful. But I have to learn to be like Jesus. And I learn to be meek. Jesus, help me not to take control of this situation. Instead, I'm going to give it to the Father. Father God, let your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven in that situation. And I keep on fighting for that until the anger begins to dissipate. Not just for me, but I believe I'm changing things in the spiritual realm for that situation. Blessed are those who are meek. Get angry about the sin you see in your life. Get angry about the sin you see in the world. But don't stay there lifted up to God in prayer. Trust him to fix it. You guys following still? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus said, I have food you know nothing about. Peter was probably thinking, what? You've been holding out on us. You got snacks. If you're ever hungry, just look for, just look for like the mom or the, or, the, or the woman with the big purse. They always got snacks. They're all hungry. They've noticed Jesus isn't eating. They're worried for him. And Jesus says, I have food you know nothing about, and it is to do the will of my Father in heaven. I don't believe Jesus was just trying to say something cute and deep. I believe that he understood a spiritual satisfaction of the soul, that you'd be willing to even give up food for the right things. We should not be known for valuing worldly things. Among our peers, we should not be known for valuing worldly things like food and drink and clothes and bling, but the will of God. Now, is God against those things? Certainly not. I think he wants us wearing clothes. 
think wants our kids looking, you know, nice when they go to school. But what I think he's saying is when it comes out, other people perceive you. Do they even realize you're hungry for the will of God? That where they would normally give in to temptation and say, nobody's looking, nobody's looking. The Christian's like, I will not participate in that. Why not? Because I hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. We should be known preeminently among all of our peers that what we are known for is the will of God. Doing what is right, having a clean conscience, and helping the helpless. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. They shall receive the desires of their heart. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Mercy just simply means being able to feel the pain of others and wanting to help. Feeling the pain of others and wanting to help, even those who haven't treated you that way. <laughs> you ever been down on your luck? And it's like somebody comes over, puts a smile on their face, and then kicks you? There's going to be a moment, I believe, for many of you, that God's going to set up a kingdom situation for the same thing to happen to them. So that you can come over, smile on your face, and they're going to cower going, I knew it, I knew it. And you're going to put your hand up and you're going to say, I live differently. And God's going to use you to extend mercy to that person in a powerful way. Mercy means to treat others how you would want to be treated if you were in their shoes. I have a question for you, though. And this is a problem in America more and more. And I can say so many reasons why, but it's still the problem. Can you even feel the pain of others anymore? Can you feel the pain of others anymore? If you are in this room and you cannot, and I will tell you, you are not alone in that. There's a lot of people who are medicated beyond belief, and they don't know what to do because they feel numb in their heart. They cannot feel the pain of others anymore. Please don't stay there. Start praying and saying, God, give me the ability to feel what others feel again. Don't stay there in that place because if you want to be a person of mercy, you first have to be able to feel the pain of others and then want to help. People need mercy. All around us, they are crying out for mercy. Do you notice? Notice. And do whatever you need to to notice because blessed are those who are merciful because then in their time of need, they will receive God's mercy. I have learned that. When I'm like, it's a little inconvenient to help this time, I can feel the Holy Spirit going, well, it's going to be a little inconvenient for me to help you next time. <laughs> and if you think that's funny, Holy Spirit has had a good laugh about situations in which I had to learn that the hard way. You see, we think God is always nice to us, and, it's, and he's not always nice, he's loving. It means he teaches us how to do what is right so we don't go to hell. And so there have been times where I'm like, oh, it's inconvenient. And I know my conscience is like, you, should, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. And I'm like, oh, it's going to be okay. Somewhere down the line, I get myself in trouble. And guess what happens? Jesus, help me. Heaven's closed. <laughs> but God, Jesus like, sorry, you have to learn your lesson. Because if you don't feel the pain of your own consequences, you will not be able to feel the pain of other people's consequences. So the next time you'll act in mercy. <laughs> Ah, trust me, I still got a ways to go. But I'm glad that Jesus teaches me these lessons. 
Next is pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. I don't believe this means blessed are those who are perfect. Now, there's a scripture that says, be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. But thank you, thankfully, in the Greek, that word be means keep trying, keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. Not literally, you either are or you aren't. So being pure in spirit, I don't think means being perfect. I just don't think that's possible on this side of heaven. I think it means just being totally sold out to God and not easily discouraged. And to do everything the Holy Spirit tells you to do even when it's hard. I think that's it. You are totally sold out to God. You are not easily discouraged. And when the Holy Spirit tells you to do something, you do it. And even if you don't do it, then you do the next thing the Holy Spirit would tell you to do, which is keep your eyes open for next time. And repent of missing this opportunity. Then get back up and get back on the train of following my will. Here's a fun question. How in the world did David ever get the nickname, a man after God's own heart, considering everything that man did? Anybody ever asked that question? If you haven't, it's because you didn't really read the whole story of David. He kills somebody in order to get, he kills a, a husband in order to get the wife, and then like ignores like it never happened. And then, like, later in the Bible, I'm reading, I'm like, David is not a good guy. David's definitely going to hell. This guy is not, it's just not a problem. This was, like, before I read, like, enough of the Bible to know the others. And I get to this part where it says, but God said that David was a man after his own heart. I wanted to throw the Bible down and go, what? What are you talking about, God? He's done way more than anybody, most people have ever done. It was horrendous. And it made me think in the way that Jesus captures our attention to think, what does he mean by pure in heart then? Because it cannot possibly mean a perfect record. And it, it dawned on me with God's help. I believe it's because David just never gave up. It didn't matter what, how bad things got. He just never gave up in trying to be more like the God he served. He knew how to get back up. We know from Psalm 53, David eventually confessed his sins. He even owned his wrongs at a heavy price. Did you know David did not get let off? He lost his first son because of what he had done. So he may have been saved spiritually, but he paid a heavy cost. And even despite this, he chose to learn from it as a mistake. And so despite everything David did, he never stopped believing or running wholeheartedly. After until his last breath, he's like he hurled himself into the finish line. I feel like so many of us, that's what we're going to be doing. We're like, I, I have, this has not been a good life. Jesus, I'm just trusting you. And you're like just going and get to the finish line. You just have to throw yourself into it. Because it ain't going to be glorious. I'm like, Jesus, please take me. <laughs> and my friends, just like the Beatitude says, David now sees God right now in heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Good news. You don't got to be perfect. You just don't give up. If you sin, confess it. Get clean. And then you get back on the train of righteousness. Start becoming like Jesus. When you get discouraged, keep pressing in. Keep pressing in. Asking people to pray for you. Talk about it. Whatever you need to do. Do not stop. Just jump. Curl yourself into the finish line. And then God's going to go, she or he was a man after my own heart. I'm so glad it works that way. Blessed are the peacemakers. We only have two left. You guys still okay? Blessed are the peacemakers. 
Peacemakers, notice it says peacemaker and not a peacekeeper. Different. A peacemaker is someone who's not only knows how to avoid a fight, which is wisdom. Knowing how to avoid a fight is important. It's also not somebody who knows how to work through a fight, which is also important. But more importantly, it's talking about somebody who knows how to build community. You see, many of us, we are living in the land of avoidance or just trying to, like, pacify. It's God saying, if you want to be my children, you got to be a maker like me. you got to be a family builder. you got to be a church builder. That's different. That's going to require some of you to get outside your comfort zone and be super poor in spirit and be like, Holy Spirit, you better do a deep work in my heart and empower me to, like, to the 10. Because I'm terrified of people. But it's clear. Jesus is saying, when you start partnering with me to build community, build peace, you will be happy. You will feel the pleasure of God in your life. Blessed are those who know how to focus on love and spreading the love rather than avoiding it. In other words, get in the game. Stop stirring up trouble. Stop being easily offended. Stop harboring resentment. And instead, focus on practicing love, building people up, and uniting us all together to be what we already are, which is family in Christ. Blessed are those who are peacemakers and not just keepers, for they are like their creator or maker in heaven. And last is blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, which of course is another one you're like, what? How am I happy for being persecuted? I think all Jesus is saying is, blessed are those who would rather die than compromise their witness for Christ. That we are so in love with Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. We would rather somebody kill us than compromise for Jesus. Like the martyrs of old and martyrs all over the world right now, just so you know. Thousands upon thousands of Christians are being martyred every single day because they refuse to compromise for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not just for their own salvation, for the salvation of those who are watching. If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, says the Son of Man, I will be ashamed of that person when I return in my glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. As believers, we are called to do what is right. We are not children of darkness or the devil. We are not children of resentment, pornography, adultery, cowardice, or fear. But through Jesus Christ, we are now children of light, which is purity, power, loyalty, integrity, faith, and the spirit. Remember who you are and stop being duped by the devil. Instead, cast out the devil in Jesus' name. Get back up and start being a person after God's own heart. Amen? None of you are lost. We all know what it is to stumble. We all know what it is to get caught up in something. Just don't stay there. Get it right. Make it right. And the Holy Spirit's going to come. And my friend, it's going to be as if it never happened, except that you learned your lesson. So to close, we are light. We are high point. And I don't know about you, but if Jesus were to touch down today, I would want to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful family. You did everything I asked of you. Now come and enter my rest. Right now, I'm not sure what he'd say. Wait. 
I do. You are the light of the world. Now let your light shine so that all may see your good works, so that they may praise my Father in heaven. Amen? Because it's not about being a perfect church. It's just about being a church after God's own heart. Worship team, if you want to come up. Eight rules. Eight rules to the kingdom. This is a big book. I don't know about you, but when Jesus is like, let me simplify it for you, I'm like, yes. <laughs> There's only eight. Go home and memorize them. Memorize them. Get them deep into your spirit so then throughout the day, Holy Spirit can start bringing them up in those moments you need to practice them. Memorize them. Go home and memorize them and then live them and be truly lit like, like uh, Jesus is talking about. Number one, pray. For yours is already the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, when you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Why are you allowed to pray such a great thing? Because yours is already the kingdom through Jesus Christ. Mourn. Mourn over your sins and please mourn over the sins of the world. And God says, as you start to do that, you'll be comforted. Be meek. And you shall inherit the earth because those who know how to get angry about something but still give it over to God and his will, he can trust them with the world. Do what is right. And he promises you will be filled. It's not always easy to do what is right, but if you do it, he says you will be filled. Show mercy and you will receive mercy. Be pure in heart and you shall see God. Be a peacemaker and you will look like your maker in heaven. And above all, never compromise. <laughs>